Welcome to EDS at Union Now. Today's conversation was recorded October 14, 2020. Our guest is Ari Berman, a former senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and a fellow with The Nation Institute. He's written extensively about American politics, civil rights, and the intersection of money and politics. His stories have also appeared in The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. All of us here at EDS want to remind you to vote. Our lives depend on it. I'm Serene Jones, and I am the president at Union Theological Seminary, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Episcopal Divinity School at Union's Fall Community Read with Ari Bierman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. With our election just 20 days away and many reports of voter suppression, during early voting and with absentee ballots, this is definitely a timely conversation. But before we get to our speaker, I would like to introduce you to the Dean of EDS at Union, my colleague and dear friend, the very Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, who also holds the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology at Union. Dean Douglas also serves as canon theologian at the Washington Cathedral and as theologian in residence at Trinity Wall Street Church in New York. Dean Douglas. Thank you so much, Serene. And thank all of you for joining us. Each semester as President Jones said, we select a social issue. This semester, our focus was on voting and there was no better book for us to begin to discuss the many concerns around voting and the importance of voting than Ari Berman's book, Give Us the Ballot. Now, why is this an important issue for the church and faith leaders and the seminar and seminarians and the seminary community to be talking about? It is important for us to make voting uh, the focus of our attention, not simply into not simply engaged in these conversations, but actively involved in getting people to the polls and ensuring their rights to vote. Because in many respects, we have no choice. For as faith leaders, as a seminary, as seminarians, we are accountable to the just future that God promises us all. And that means we must lead this nation toward its better angels to be a place where all persons are free to live into the fullness of their created humanity, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their sexual expression, orientation, religion, or country of origin. This is not about political par partisanship. It is about a moral obligation. And that obligation starts with ensuring that people vote and are able to do so without intimidation. And so I am looking forward to hearing from Ari Berman this evening and discussing with him both the historical and present attacks on voting rights. Serene, I'll now pass it back to you to introduce our guest speaker for tonight. Thank you, Kelly. Um, I am so excited to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about how we first met, which is really apropos uh, this evening's conversation. We met which, almost about six years ago when we were part of a faith and public life congressional and civic leader delegation that had gone to Selma and Birmingham to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, um, which was the, um, the march that was led by John Lewis, um, who, who was with us at the time. Um, and we actually met most appropriately on a bus where we couldn't stop talking. And Ari's book was on the way out and that, time together was actually the time that you will read about um, in the conclusion of the time span 
that this book covers. Um, he is a senior reporter for um, Mother Jones, who is all, he's also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Politico. In addition to give us the ballot, um, he has also authored the wonderful book titled Herding Donkeys, Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party. I love that title. And Reshape American Politics. And a forthcoming book entitled Minority Rule. He has also been a frequent commentator on MSNBC, NPR, PBS. It's hard to turn on the television today to any news channel and not hear Ari talking. So we're very honored to have him here tonight to discuss voting rights and give us the ballot um, named the best book in 2015 by the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, and the Boston Globe and it was nominated for the American Library Association's Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence. I am pleased to introduce Ari German. Hi, Serene. Hi, Dean Douglas. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for having me. Um, this is a real uh, honor for me uh, to be here uh, with EDS and the broader community. And there's a lot of things that uh, stink right now about being in a pandemic. And uh, one of them is not being able uh, to be in person with all of you. Uh, and uh, I could really use your energy um, and your faith uh, and your sense of uh, righteous justice uh, right now uh, more than ever. And, and so I'm really honored uh, to be here and to uh, share uh, my thoughts on voting rights history uh, and what's happening right now. Um, with all of you and then get into a discussion uh, with Dean Douglas um, about all of this. As, as Serene mentioned, this event in many ways was almost six years uh, in the making. We met in March of 2015 on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and we took this incredible civil rights pilgrimage to Alabama with John Lewis and other members of Congress and other uh, faith and progressive leaders. And I had been on this trip with John Lewis two years before as well, and it was truly remarkable. John Lewis often said that he felt during the civil rights movement like he was moved by the spirit of history. And that's how I felt when I went back to Alabama with John Lewis. Uh, Serena and I went to Birmingham and we went to the 16th Street Baptist Church where four little girls were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in 1963, and we saw the stained glass window where the bomb went through, right through the face of Jesus uh, back in 1963. And we went to Selma for the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act with President Barack Obama, former President George W. Bush, when 100,000 people were there. And it was this incredible triumph, this incredible celebration, this incredible moment of civil rights history to have the man in John Lewis who nearly died marching for voting rights in Selma, embraced by the first black president on the foot of the bridge that changed the course of American history. But while it was an amazing moment and an amazing trip, there was also a sense of sadness that I had because on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act itself had been gutted. And many of the politicians, including some people that were on that very trip, were in the process of rolling back the legacy of what John Lewis and so many other people fought for. And I felt in many ways the same way when John Lewis passed away in July. I was so glad that so many people were celebrating his life and celebrating everything that he fought for and talking about the incredible marches he led for things like civil rights and things like voting rights. But I was also dismayed to see people like Mitch McConnell praise John Lewis, to hear Mitch McConnell talk about singing We Shall Overcome with John Lewis in the US Capitol, when Mitch McConnell has been blocking legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act for over 300 days, when he's blocking a vote today on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So I think more than ever, we need to honor people like John Lewis with actions, 
not words. If we want to be moved by the spirit of history once again, we have to fight for the same ideals they fought for. And if you look at where we're at right now, we're 20 days until November 3rd. Over 14 million people have already voted. The election is taking place right now. When you think about the right to vote in this country, we talk about it as a right, but we've too often treated it as a privilege. When the constitution was ratified in 1789, only white male property owners could vote. That meant white men without property couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote. African-Americans couldn't vote. Many were enslaved. Native Americans weren't even considered citizens of the United States. In the first presidential election where George Washington was elected, only 6% of Americans were even eligible to vote. In 1920, when the 19th Amendment was passed, giving women the right to vote, and we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of that this year, that was still a right that was largely only enjoyed by white women. So the right to vote is a relatively recent phenomenon for so many people in this country. And it wasn't until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that gave so many men and women of color the right to vote after being disenfranchised for so many years. One of the things that's so amazing to me about John Lewis was how young he was when he first got involved in the civil rights movement. And he was only 17 when he met Rosa Parks. He was only 18 when he met Martin Luther King. He was only 20 when he led the sit-in movement in Nashville. He was only 21 when he led the Freedom Rides. He was only 23 when he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. And he was only 25 when he led the March for Voting Rights, Act, for, for Voting rights in Selma, Alabama. When John Lewis marched for voting rights in Selma, only 300 to 15,000 African-Americans were registered to vote. There were things like literacy tests. You had to name all 67 county judges to register to vote if you were black, which the 67 county judges themselves would have never been able to do had they been asked that question. There were poll taxes. You actually had to be able to pay to register to vote, which many poor people could not do. There were young civil rights activists like Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner and James Cheney that went down to Mississippi and were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan simply for trying to register people to vote. When the murder of George Floyd happened this summer, I thought back to another murder that happened in Alabama in 1965 that helped lead to the Selma to Montgomery March. There was a young civil rights activist in Marion, Alabama next to Selma named Jimmy Lee Jackson. He was 25 years old. He was the youngest deacon at his church. He had tried and failed to register to vote five times. He participated in a night march in Marion, Alabama. And Alabama state troopers attacked it. And Jimmy Lee Jackson went to protect his mother. And he was shot and later killed by Alabama state troopers for trying to protect his mother and participate in the civil rights march. John Lewis was so angry and other civil rights demonstrators were so angry about the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson. They had the idea of trying to march from Selma to Montgomery, the state capital, carrying Jimmy Lee Jackson's casket. That's where the whole idea of the Selma to Montgomery march came from. So in many ways, Jimmy Lee Jackson was to the voting rights struggle of 1965 as George Floyd has been to the struggle of white supremacy in 2020. When John Lewis marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he was brutally beaten by Alabama state troopers with tear gas, with bullwhips, on horseback. That night, ABC broke into its primetime premiere of the film Judgment at Nuremberg and showed footage from Sella, Alabama to the whole country. So many Americans were so confused, they thought the images from Selma were actually from Nazi Germany. This changed the whole consciousness of the nation. Many, many faith leaders were a key part of this movement. And eight days later, Lyndon Johnson introduced the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And he gave this amazing speech, in which he said that the right to vote was not a black versus white problem. It was not a Democrat versus Republican problem. It was not a North versus South problem. It was an American problem. It was a moral problem that we could not be a democracy when an entire race was disenfranchised an entire region of the country. So the Voting Rights Act really transformed American democracy by getting rid of those literacy tests and poll taxes, by sending federal officials to the South for the first time. 
uh, to register black voters and requiring those states with long history of discrimination to approve their voting changes with the federal government. And of course it led to the first black politicians, the first Asian politicians, the first Latino politicians, the first women politicians. And it changed many white people too, because he no longer had to play the race card if he wanted to get elected. But it's also true that the fight for voting rights didn't end in 1965, and that voter suppression is sadly not a thing of the past. Since 2010, half the states in the country have changed their voting laws to make it harder to vote. This is when I first started covering the issue as a journalist. Things like strict voter ID laws and cutbacks to early voting and purging the voting rolls and closing polling places. In states like Texas, for example, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. Then in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act and ruled that those states with the longest histories of discrimination no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. That led to a whole new wave of voter suppression. States with a long history of discrimination closed over 1,600 polling places in states like Georgia and Texas as a result of that law. I'm sure you guys saw the six hour lines in Georgia in the primaries, the 11 hour lines in Georgia just a few days ago during early voting. That didn't happen by accident. Georgia closed over 200 polling places from 2012 to 2018 and many more uh, in recent years. And in the state of Georgia, in predominantly white neighborhoods during the primary in June, there was only a six minute wait for white voters. But in communities of color, there was a 51 minute wait to vote. So communities of color in Georgia are waiting eight and a half times to vote as white voters. So many of the same disparities that we see in the criminal justice system, we also see in our voting system. And there's so many examples, unfortunately, of voter suppression right now. In Florida in 2018, 64% of people passed a law restoring voting rights to people with past felony convictions. This was a huge breakthrough. It was gonna to lead to the biggest expansion of voting rights in the country's history. Then the Florida legislature added a requirement saying that you had to pay all fines, fees, and restitution to be able to vote. That ended up being a modern day poll tax that was upheld recently by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in a decision with five Trump appointees in the majority. So Donald Trump flipped that court, then that court upheld a modern day poll tax in Florida. It was initially expected that 1 million people or more could register to vote in Florida with past felony convictions. But over 775,000 people still owe fines, fees, or restitution and might not be able to vote in this election in Florida. So in a state that was decided by 537 votes in 2000, you could have over 700,000 people disenfranchised. That's what voter suppression looks like in this day and age. You can look at what Texas is doing. The fact that in Harris County, Texas, the governor of Texas issued an order, reversing his own order, saying that instead of 12 locations to drop off a mail ballot, there can only be one location to drop off a mail ballot. One location to drop off a mail ballot in the largest county in Texas, in which has more people than 26 states, is larger than the state of Rhode Island and has 2.4 million registered voters. That's what um, voter suppression looks like. We're seeing right now with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, the prospect of a six to three Supreme Court that could further voter suppression, that could kill what's left of the Voting Rights Act, that could strike down efforts to stop gerrymandering, that will uphold virtually every voter suppression law. And it was very revealing to me that Amy Coney Barrett in her testimony refused to say if voter intimidation is unconstitutional, when it is, refused to say if the president should commit to peaceful transfer of power, which he absolutely should, refused to say if the president has the power to unilaterally delay the election, which he does not, refused to say whether voter suppression still exists, which obviously it does if you've listened to all the things that I'm talking about. So for all of those reasons, I am concerned, but I'm also hopeful because I believe that massive turnout can overcome massive suppression. Despite those 11 hour lines in Georgia a few days ago, Georgia had record turnout for early voting in that state. Despite the attempts to shut down mail voting in Texas, 
Harris County, Texas had record voting on the first day of early voting. 128,000 people in Harris County, Texas voted on the first day of early voting yesterday. That was higher than early voting turnout in the entire state of Georgia. And they asked people on these lines, why are you waiting in line so long to vote? And one woman said, we're voting like our life depends on it. Because in this year in particular, in many ways it does. And so the message has to be, yes, there's voter suppression, but also yes, we can overcome it. In this election, in many ways, people have more options to vote than ever before. In 44 states, you can vote by mail for any reason without an excuse. Many states like New York have expanded mail voting because of the pandemic. In 40 states, you can vote early, like people are doing in Georgia and Texas right now, so that not everyone votes on election day and doesn't stress the system. And it's really important to debunk disinformation because there's so much disinformation out there that's being led by the president and his allies. There was a study from Harvard that found that the president and Fox News are the biggest spreader of disinformation in the country. I mean, it's amazing to think that the president of the United States could be the biggest spreader of falsehoods about voting. So we have to tell people, if you wanna vote by mail, voting by mail is not new, it's not partisan, it's not subject to major fraud. But if you do decide to vote by mail, request your ballot early, return it early, drop it off if possible, sign it carefully. If you decide to vote in person, vote early if you can. Try not to vote on the first day of early voting. Try to vote on the third or fourth day of early voting when the lines are much shorter. Mm -hmm. Sign up to be a poll worker if you're healthy. One of the reasons so many places have been closed is because we don't have enough poll workers in this country. Uh, and the majority of poll workers are over the age of 60 and high risk. 600,000 people have already signed up to be poll workers in this election. So a lot of young people are stepping up and getting active. And make sure to vote in state and local elections. I can't emphasize this enough. If you look at what happened to George Floyd, if you look at what happened to Breonna Taylor, if you look at the legacy of racism and white supremacy, local offices matter tremendously. Who the mayor is, who the district attorneys are, who judges are, who prosecutors are, who the state attorney general is, all of this matters tremendously and gets far less attention than the presidential race. State races are more important than ever this year. It's state legislatures that control voting laws, that decide how easy or how hard it is to vote. And it's state legislatures that are elected in 2020 that are going to drop redistricting maps for the next decade in 2021, based, I should add, on census data. And the census is ending tomorrow. So if you haven't filled out the 2020 census, do it as soon as you can. Who your secretary of state is matters tremendously when you talk about how much information voters are getting, how easy, how hard it is to vote. Then after everyone votes, that's just the first step at social change. We have to keep protesting. We have to keep demonstrating. We have to keep lobbying. We have to keep meeting with our elected officials. Mitch McConnell has been blocking legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act for over 300 days. He has been blocking legislation to make it much easier to vote for over a year. He has been blocking legislation to prevent foreign election interference for nearly a year. All of these bills have passed the House, but have gone nowhere in the Senate. So if we get a different government come January, we need different voting laws. We need to understand that there is a direct correlation between a rigged democracy and a rigged politics. And if we wanna unrig our politics, we need to unrig our democracy. We know historically that voter suppression has been a key tool used to preserve white supremacy. It's why John Lewis and so many others were brutally beaten when they marched for voting rights. If we wanna dismantle the legacy of racism in our country, voting isn't the only solution, but it's a key and important one. And the question in this election is very different than in other elections. In other elections, you spend a long time trying to convince people, will you vote? In this election, the question is different. I think people will vote. The question is, how will they vote? And it's more important than ever that people make a plan to vote and that you be prepared 
to overcome any sort of obstacles in your way. Because I am truly convinced that massive turnout, as I said earlier, can beat massive suppression. And I think in this election, we need to vote for John Lewis. We need to vote for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We need to vote for all of those people that fought so hard for all of us to have the right to vote. And we need to pay that legacy forward. And I think we're at a pivotal moment where if we do that, we can start to address racism. We can start to address white supremacy. We can start to address voter suppression, start to solve some of these problems and start to chart a better and more hopeful future. So uh, that is what I have to say. And I am looking forward to having a conversation with you, Dean Douglas. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for not only uh, a talk which was very informative, but a call to action. And the call to action as you began is nothing less than being moved by the spirit of history. And indeed to be moved by the spirit of history is to vote. I wanna, I wanna dig little more deeply into this reality of voter suppression and the connection between voter suppression and white supremacy. You've made very clear in your book, Give Us the Ballot, that in actual fact, the moment that the 14th and 15th amendments were passed, these sort of reconstruction uh, amendments that uh, where blacks were given citizenship rights, presumably as well as the right to vote. From though, that very moment, there have been efforts to disenfranchise uh, the black population by any means necessary. And in fact, the 14th Amendment has never been fully enforced, for if it were, we perhaps would never have needed the VRA. Uh, because that would have meant that states would have been penalized for discriminating and particularly uh, prohibiting uh, black people from voting. And we see that those states that did that and are doing that have never been penalized. The point is that when we talk about voter suppression, we are really talking about the disenfranchisement of the black vote and more particularly the black female vote as black women uh, tend to vote in larger numbers and in, in, in our larger part of the electorate and not in no small way because of the way in which uh, black males have been uh, the focus of mass incarceration, et cetera. Nevertheless, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, this relationship even more between with the black vote being the, the targeted uh, vote in terms of uh, voter suppression. And we see even in the fight for the VRA, there has always been a fear <laughs> of the black vote and a fear of having more uh, black people enfranchised. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, um... Good question. Um, if you look back historically, first off, there's always been a fear of democracy from people in power. So e even before the black vote was an issue uh, in the 1700s, the founders were concerned with too much democracy because they didn't really believe that the people could be trusted to govern. And then after we fought a civil war and enfranchised 4 million people, and there were black governors and senators from states like Louisiana and Mississippi, which we never had before, where there was a majority black legislature in the state of South Carolina. Instead of accepting that, the white minority in these states led a violent counter-revolution, which they then backed with a legal counter-revolution. So they tried to prevent African-Americans from voting through violence and fraud and lynching and an outright intimidation, which the federal government was too cowardly to stop during reconstruction because they also wanted those conservative white votes. Then once blacks were scared away from the polls in states like Mississippi, you began to see legal disenfranchisement. You began to see things like literacy tests and poll taxes. There was a law in Mississippi in the Mississippi plan of 1890 allowing the state 
to tell voters that they had to interpret a provision of the constitution to the satisfaction of the local registrar. Well, of course, no African-American could ever interpret the constitution to the satisfaction of the local white registrars, but white people were never asked those sort of questions. They, these restrictions never explicitly mentioned race, but everyone knew that race was what it was about. And basically the 15th amendment was nullified and the 14th amendment was ignored. And the 14th amendment, as you said, had a provision that if states eliminated suffrage, their representation would be reduced in the House of Representatives and by, by correlation in the Electoral College. That was never enforced. And so when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, it basically adopted the language of the 15th Amendment. It's a very, very strange situation that a law would have to be passed in 1965 to enforce an amendment ratified in 1870. If we had just enforced the 14th and 15th Amendment, we would have never needed the Voting Rights Act. And I think this goes to show the importance of talking about history, of learning from history, but also the fact that voter suppression in this country goes back a very, very long way. And you can't understand it by looking at 2020 or looking at 2010 or even looking at 1965. You have to go back a lot deeper. Yeah, I think, and that is the irony, right? That in fact, we have never upheld uh, these constitutional amendments. And these amendments, particularly the, well, the 14th and 15th amendment uh, are in effect mimicking uh, the VRA, which we're again now trying to uh, pass another one and, and, and to uh, enforce. <laughs> This target, I want to look again at this target on the Black vote and the ways in which voter suppression uh, or disenfranchising, it's, it's another way, disenfranchising the African-American community continues to take different forms. For instance, you point out in your book in the Bush uh, v. Gore case in Florida, most of the ballots thrown out at that time were ballots by black voters. We look at the fact you raised the uh, issue in terms of being very aware, of, for instance, who our secretary of states are uh, in our very, uh, in our various states. We look at what happened in the close election uh, between uh, now Governor Kemp in uh, Georgia and Stacey Abrams. When Kemp was Secretary of State, he of course uh, changed a lot of uh, the voting laws and allowing him uh, to win by what, 55,000 uh, 55, votes or so, again, the change in these laws disenfranchised uh, black voters at a disproportionate uh, uh, level than they did white voters. So is there any merit in really beginning to talk about as opposed to simply voter suppression that what we're really doing is disenfranchising a community, a group of people, a certain demographic that the 14th and 15th Amendment were supposed to protect? Is there any merit to begin to, instead of uh, acting as if the VRA is something new, but uh, making clear that it, it's not anything new, we're just trying to enforce the amendments that are already there? Yeah, that, that's a really good um, point, Dina. And I'll give you uh, a, a really good example of, of how um, voter suppression works today. And so uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, yeah. who had, uh, for those that have read the book, had been trying to weaken the Voting Rights Act since he was a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department. He wrote the majority decision gutting the Voting Rights Act. And he said that things have changed dramatically in the South and that, uh, as he said, blatant evasions of federal law are exceedingly rare. A month after that opinion in Shelby County versus Holder, North Carolina, which had some of the most progressive voting laws in the South, Republicans there dramatically rewrote their voting laws. They required strict voter ID. They cut early voting. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They even eliminated Citizens Awareness Month, which North Carolina did to encourage people to vote. This law was challenged before the courts. 
And the court asked the state of North Carolina. North Carolina was one of those states that had Sunday voting with early voting. And Sunday was a popular day, uh, particularly for African-Americans to vote because that's when black churches did souls to the polls, voter mobilization drives. And so uh, the court asked the state of North Carolina, why did you eliminate Sunday voting? And the state of North Carolina said, well, some people were using it more than others. And then the court said, well, who was using it more than others? And the state of North Carolina said, counties that were disproportionately Democratic and disproportionately African-American. And the court said, you just admitted to us in federal court that you did this to disenfranchise people based on their party, but more significantly based on their race. And they said that this is as close to a smoking gun as you'll ever see in modern times. And so the tactics are more subtle now. They're not outright intimidation. Uh, maybe some of them are with Trump, but for the most part, they are more subtle. They're old poison in new bottles, but they have the same kind of effect. And this opinion in North Carolina striking down this voter suppression law was remarkable to read about black voters targeted in the courts with almost surgical precision. Okay. And to read it in 2016 and think this was written in 2016. This wasn't written in 1866. This wasn't written in 1966. This was written in 2016 where legislators are intentionally targeting people based on their race. And you're right, we're seeing it all across the country. We're seeing it in Georgia. We're seeing it in Texas. We're seeing it in other states. I will say that I, while it's absolutely true that black voters are the target of voter suppression, it's also broader than that. It's targeting Latinos. It's targeting Asian Americans. It's targeting newly naturalized immigrants. It's targeting younger voters. I think the way I think about it is, there's this rainbow coalition in politics today. And I think it's targeting all of those people. So while I agree with you that some people have been targeted throughout US history, we have a very, very sad legacy of that. I th also think that as new demographics and new voters have an impact in the political process, they are also being targeted for disenfranchisement as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I agree with that. You have said, and so let's look how we get out of this or what, uh, yeah, how do, we, how do we get out of this pattern, out of this cycle? You've talked about, you've said this evening that a rigged democracy uh, is a consequence of rigged politics. You have said in other instances that a rigged judiciary, <laughs> right, uh, is uh, means a rigged election, or rigged election is related to a rigged judiciary. And I, as you talk about the relationship between, for instance, our Supreme Court justices and their relationship to voter suppression, uh, if you will, and you look at, for instance, the long history, as you've just uh, cited, of John Robertson, he never was for. Uh, the VRA, and he worked with uh, uh, clerk with Rehnquist, as you point out uh, in your book, who indeed uh, talked about uh, the VRA as practically being legalized racial entitlement, uh, uh, which is so ironic. Uh, so yet you have uh, Justice Roberts, who if, uh, was able by virtue of the fact being on the Supreme Court to eviscerate uh, the VRA. Now we have uh, Amy Comey Barrett, who certainly will be on uh, the Supreme Court. In her dissent to the evisceration of the VRA, Justice, the late Justice Ginsburg said that the arc of the moral universe, and I quote her, is long, but it bends toward justice if, she says, there's a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. That commitment, she says, has been disserviced by today's decision, that Shelby v. Holder decision. What is the recourse then, Ari, to rigged elections, voter suppression, without the Supreme Court, if indeed our judiciary remains so politicized and hence rigged? Well, I, I think the recourse are the other branches of government. And I think that if we have a different president and a different Senate come January, a lot of opportunities for reform 
are opened up. And I think that voting rights reform is the most important reform of all, because if we don't expand voting rights, voter suppression is going to continue. Then that those people that want to expand voting rights have to be as aggressive as pushing to expand the right to vote as those people who are trying to suppress the vote are as aggressive at suppressing it. And so I'll just give you a few bills. The House has already passed legislation to restore and modernize the Voting Rights Act. That's something that could be passed immediately um, by a Democratic Congress come January. The House has passed the For the People Act, which would dramatically expand voting rights by having things like automatic registration in every state, early voting in every state, automatically restoring voting rights to people with past felony convictions, doing redistricting by independent commissions instead of politicians drawing their own districts, making election day a federal holiday, doing all of these reforms. Um, that bill has been passed the House and been blocked by the Senate. Um, for over a year. So there's a lot that the Congress can do. I also think there's a lot of important work that can be done in the states. I'll give you an example. Virginia this year right. completely redid their voting laws after there was a Democratic majority there. Uh, they now have 45 days of early voting. Over a million people have already voted in Virginia because it's so easy to vote there now. They did uh, election day and automatic registration. They replaced Robert E. Lee Day and made Election Day a state holiday instead, uh, which is a great idea. And so that's an example of how focusing on the local level, you can start to change things. I also think that we are going to have to change the structure of the courts. The fact is Republicans stole one Supreme Court seat they are basically in the process of stealing another. We have never, ever, ever in our elected history tried to confirm someone 20 days before November 3rd when over 14 million people have already voted. By the time there's a vote on Amy Coney Barrett, maybe 20 million or more Americans will have uh, already voted. And not only that, but Mitch McConnell blocked over 110 nominees for Barack Obama. And put 218 Trump judges on the judiciary as well. So to me, that is court packing. What Republicans have done is court packing. And what we need to do is restore a sense of balance to the courts that have been completely warped and out of step with where the country is and where the other branches of government are. And that's a conversation that's going to need to be had um, come January. But right now, the most important thing is just to vote in record numbers and open up the possibility of unrigging our democracy. But if we don't vote, none of those things are possible. Yeah, I so agree. It's, all, it's so very interesting that this conversation about packing the courts is a conversation that people, indeed journalists and others, media are raising in relationship to the Democrats threat, when in fact, what we are seeing and what we have seen is the packing of the courts. And that it's voices like you, and I wish uh, that would be heard more, that are saying that's what's been going on all along. And so our judiciary, it seems as though there has now been, we talk about a balance of power, but there's been this imbalance that our judiciary, uh, if it fell, so too does our democracy. And it seems as though things are now out of sync. So we can see, for instance, that uh, on the one hand in Texas where uh, the governor closed down uh, a number of the places where people could turn in their ballots, uh, one per county, et cetera, uh, that at first that was uh, struck down and then the appeals court upheld it. Uh, uh, and so and upheld his decision to do so. We're of course seeing a battle in California uh, and in other places right now. So how, how do we, I mean, it seems as though the last safeguard to our democracy is the judiciary at the same time that the judiciary is also that that is allowing our democracy uh, to be further eviscerated. How do we really reclaim that, particularly given uh, the Supreme Court and these are lifetime memberships? Well, I think we need to change the composition of the courts. And if we can't change the composition of the courts, we need to stop thinking about the courts as the last safeguard of our rights. And we need to stop 
those voter suppression laws from being passed in the first place. We need to stop these efforts in Texas and Wisconsin and Georgia before they're ever challenged in the courts. And so that's one reason we need a new Voting Rights Act, because you can stop this kind of discrimination before it even exists. But I ultimately think the solution to voter suppression is going to be a political solution, not a legal one. John Lewis and civil rights activists, they filed a lot of lawsuits and they weren't getting anywhere because they also faced a rigged judiciary. And that's why it was so important to get the Voting Rights Act, to get legislation, because they knew that they couldn't rely on the courts, that they had to change the political process to be able to have their concerns responded to. And so I ultimately think that this is a political question, not a legal question. And I think that if different kind of people are elected, particularly a different kind of people that will make democracy reform a priority, that's the way to solve this thing. And then to make the suppression itself something that you're talking about and are willing to overcome. You, you don't want to demobilize people. You don't want to make people feel like their vote doesn't matter or won't count because that's absolutely what the president's trying to do right now. At the same time, I believe that efforts to suppress the vote in Georgia and Texas and other states are motivating people to turn out because they yeah. feel like their right to vote is under attack and they need to defend it. And I think that's going to be a dominant thing in 2020, that people know the president doesn't want them voting. And that is going to make them more determined than ever to cast their ballot and to have it counted. So even as it's a, I, I like this distinction that it's not a legal, won't be a legal uh, resolution, but a political resolution. But, it, and it's also, and as you've said at another time, a moral issue. Uh, uh, and we look at it, here's a moral issue. What then becomes the role of faith leaders and the faith community uh, in this whole uh, uh, fight uh, for the vote, fight for our democracy, uh, this fight against the disenfranchisement of people, particularly uh, we know that this whole argument about the separation between church and state usually is an argument that's only employed against uh, progressive uh, uh, faith community and faith leaders because the religious community has been very much engaged, particularly the right uh, in, in our politic. But what, what becomes the role of the faith community uh, as we find ourselves at this time? I, I think that's a great point you bring up. I think the role of the faith community is to make a moral case against voter suppression, to say that voter suppression is fundamentally immoral. And to say that this is not about obscure debates over male voting or where polling places are or different sections of the Voting Rights Act. This is whether or not we are going to once again allow people to have fundamental rights taken away from them because of their race or because of their class or because of which political party they belong to. We have a very, very long history in this country of doing that. And we cannot go back to that place. And we cannot make voter suppression a new normal. And we cannot say, it's okay if you weren't able to vote because you didn't have the right ID or your polling place was closed, or you couldn't afford to wait in line for 10 hours. We need to make a moral case for why that's not okay. And we need to have some anger and fury and passion behind us. This is not a wonky debate between lawyers. This is about Americans being deprived of fundamental rights that so many people fought and died for. I think that is the way to engage with the argument. I think if you go back and listen to that speech, that Lyndon Johnson gave a white Southerner who didn't vote for a single civil rights bill from 1937 to 1959 gave about the Voting Rights Act. The reason it's so powerful is because he frames the right to vote in a moral issue. And, and that's what gave it its power. And the fact that he actually borrowed the language of the civil rights movement and said, we shall overcome in his speech. And John Lewis watched that speech with Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama. And he said it was the only time he had ever seen Martin Luther King cry, that that's how powerful it was when Lyndon Johnson talked about the right to vote in moral 
terms, not in political terms, not in legal terms, not in partisan terms, but in moral terms. I think that's why people like Reverend Barber are having such a big impact today because they, they're making this about more than politics. This is about fundamental rights and also fundamental notions of right versus wrong. And there's no way to defend voter suppression as a moral right. And I think if you, if you phrase it in those terms, it's a different kind of conversation. No, thank you for that. Before we open it up to uh, people who are listening, and I wanna ask you one more question. And that is, what should we expect <laughs> given all of this, all of these efforts to rig uh, the uh, vote and the uh, electorate? What should we expect on election night? That's a really good question. I wish I could um, answer that for you. What I'm heartened by is the fact that so many people have already voted and you know, we still have to see how many of those ballots are counted. But in, in terms of the level of turnout, the fact that uh, over 14 million people have already voted, that over a million people have voted in Florida and in California uh, and in Virginia and hundreds of thousands of people in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and all of these key swing states, people are voting in record numbers earlier than ever before. And so we are seeing a lot of motivation about voting. It's also true that the closer the election is, the longer it might take to count the votes. We might know the winner on election night. We might not know the winner for a few days. We might not know the winner for a week or two. And I think the message in particular from the media and from trusted institutions has to be, it's more important to get this right than to do it quickly. And it's more important to count all the votes than to prematurely declare a winner. Because uh, we know the president's gonna say all sorts of crazy things about the election, but he ultimately does not have the power to reinstall himself in a second term. He doesn't have the power to unilaterally uh, keep himself in office. And so I don't wanna play in the president's hands. I don't wanna give him any more power than he actually has. I think if people vote in record numbers, if they're proactive about voting, if they make a plan to vote, I think the election will go smoothly. And I think if not an election night, uh, shortly thereafter, we will know who the president is and it will be a legitimate election. Just one little follow-up on that, but for if indeed he he's trying to claim the power to reinstall himself through indeed the judiciary and through the Supreme Court. So if this election gets thrown to the Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> then there goes our democracy. Yes, but a lot of things have to happen for him to be able to do that. It has to be very, very close. It has to be litigated to the point where the number of votes contested will make the margin of victory. It has to be a situation where only the Supreme Court will decide to hear that case. They have no other options at their disposal. And so, yes, all of that could happen. The way the polls are looking right now, the way the turnout numbers are looking right now, even a six to three court won't be able to nullify that. But yes, the closer it is, the more contested it is, the more litigation it is, and the higher the chances it goes to the court. And if Amy Coney Barrett is on the court and does not recuse, the more chance there are that the court will pull a Bush versus Gore um, and try to choose the president again. However, in 2000, we had no idea what hanging chads and butterfly ballots and all of those things were before the election. Now we have Donald Trump openly admitting he wants the Supreme Court to reinstall him. I actually think that makes the court's job much tougher and makes it much less likely the court's going to want to intervene given the president's prior statements. Good, thank you. Uh, so let's turn to questions from those who are listening and many folks out there. Let me remind you that you can submit your questions. You will look at the bottom of your screen and you'll see a Q&A tab. And if you submit your questions there, then uh, Miguel Escobar will receive those and be able to ask them for you uh, to uh, Mr. Berman. And I think I see Miguel on screen and has a question for you. Yes, great. Um, and I think this speaks to the, the issue that you were raising around moral leadership and framing this in terms of moral and moral ways. Um, Michelle Dibley, our friend from the Washington National Cathedral asked, uh, in Minnesota, voters voted down a constitutional amendment that would have required voter ID at the polls. 
a winning campaign focused on educating voters about the consequences using a racial justice lens. What do we know about how to educate people so that they will speak out against voter suppression? Yeah, that's that's a um, really good point. Minnesota is one of the only states in which a restriction on voting was actually voted down um, at the ballot box. And it was one of those things where voter ID was polling at 80% uh, when it was first uh, proposed because everyone was like, of course everyone has an ID. What's the big deal? And two different things happened, which worked concurrently. Number one, there was a very strong push by the faith community, by the racial justice community to talk about the disparate impact that voter ID and voter suppression would have to the point that the dean raised. There was also a push to get elderly white people and farmers and other people and say, this affects you you're gonna to have to show different identification that you showed before. You might not be able to use election day registration if you don't have the right ID. You might be affected by this also. And so that's why I think, listen, racial justice is extremely important. Minnesota is still a state that is 90% white. And so you're not gonna defeat something like voter ID in Minnesota unless you convince a lot of white people to be against it too. And I think it just goes to show you that if we can broaden this fight to try to include as many people as possible in a coalition against suppression and see how it will either affect them or affect people they care about or affect fundamental rights that they care about. I think we can win these kind of battles and we can broaden it out. Thank you. I wanna make, as you speak about that and broaden it out, you spoke earlier in, in another conversation about the relationship in so many ways between uh, this, not simply the uh, suppression of voting, but voting and sort of universal voting, if you will, and the inequities in our society, uh, like poverty, uh, et cetera. And so we look at countries, for instance, like Australia, who talk about mandatory voting, but we don't have the kind of infrastructure, it seems to me, that can even begin to talk about that because there are these built-in inequities. How can we get to, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at um, whether people are gonna turn out to vote, um, education and poverty are the biggest indicators um, people that have multiple degrees that have higher incomes vote almost uniformly. And people that don't have a college education or live below the poverty line, they are much, much, much less likely to vote. And so if we want to increase voter turnout, we have to make it easier to vote, but we also have to start addressing the underlying socioeconomic disparities that prevent people from voting. And I think in many cases, prevent them from even thinking about voting or thinking about voting mattering because they have so many more pressing problems in their lives. So here's the question then, uh, Ari, do we really, as you have spent so much time uh, really looking at uh, this issue of voting and our democracy, and as we look at what's going on now and the way in which Yes, we've never really been a democracy, but the vote, period, whether or not we're talking about disenfranchising uh, certain groups of people like African-Americans, the vote has never been an uncontested matter. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> is it a democracy that we really want? Do we really want universal uh, voting? We know that originally that wasn't a part of the plan. And so is this great America, quote unquote, uh, that so many want to return to, is that really an America where we want to entrust the vote only in a small minority, hence the Electoral College, which is so anti-democracy. Uh, so are we fighting for something that was never really a part of the vision of an American democracy? I think we need to go beyond what we already have, as opposed to trying just to protect the rights we have. We need greater protection than greater rights. And the, the thing I'll say is that we don't have a fundamental right to vote in our constitution. That's right. We have things that you supposedly can't do. You supposedly can't discriminate against people on the basis of race or the basis of sex or the basis of age. Now in practice, that happens all the time. We don't have 
an amendment in our constitution that says everyone shall have a right to vote except for X, Y, and Z. And because we don't have that, the vote has always been a contested right. And so we need ultimately a new constitutional amendment to make the vote a fundamental right. If we had that, I think that would be the single greatest protection against voter suppression. Our founders never wanted it because they didn't want everyone to vote. Uh, even during Reconstruction, this was too controversial because voting rights for black men was okay, but not for women. And even more recently, it was palatable enough to prohibit certain things, but never to have these fundamental basic guarantees for the franchise. So ultimately, that's what we need a movement for in the long term. Yeah, you took uh, words out of my mouth uh, and say, what we really need is another amendment that protects the vote, period. Yes. Uh, and that gives us uh, gives us all universal voting rights, because even with the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, still contested was, the, and people were fearful of the fact that, well, that means Black women will get to vote. Uh, and so we've never really had this universal commitment. I think we have time for one more question. And so, Miguel. Sure. I think, um... So this question comes from Martha Gottwals. Uh, she mentions a few issues, um, attacks on the post office and removal of uh, mailboxes. Um, she's also concerned about undercounting in the census, which will impact the makeup of our congressional districts. Aside from voting, um, what can people like Martha do to fight against these attacks on voting and representation? Those are good questions. So there obviously was a lot of outcry over the post office. Some changes have been blocked. The postmaster general said he's gonna restore overtime. He said he's gonna make election mail a priority. Um, there's been a lot of scrutiny on them. So I think they are now prioritizing mail ballots in a way that they might not have been before, but other changes have not been restored. And so that's just why it's so important if you're going to mail your ballot do it as quickly as possible. I am confident about the ability of the post office to deliver ballots with a few weeks notice. I am nervous about the ability of the post office to deliver a ballot within a week before the election, particularly if it has to arrive by election day. So if you request a mail ballot, mail it back now. If you can't do that, drop it off. And also in most places you can actually bring it to your polling place or your elections office. You should Google the laws in your state because it differs in different states. But there's a lot of options even just for uh, mail voting. Yes, I'm, I'm concerned about the census. The census uh, is going to end either uh, tomorrow or Friday. Uh, and there's gonna be a major fight over this if there's a new president and a new Congress over whether the census data can be trusted or not and whether it's actually even usable or not. So this fight um, is far from over, but obviously urge people to respond to the census uh, if you haven't. I think- Okay, I, I would just um, urge people to know about election protection, 866-HOUR-VOTE, if you have any problems voting. Uh, volunteer for, as a poll worker, if you can, if not, a call your board of election and see if there's other things that they need you to do. Do you need to text people to make sure that they know the rules of mail balloting? Do you need to drop people off the polls in a socially responsible way? Uh, do you need uh, to go to polling places if there's long lines and make sure everyone has food and water and other things they need? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. I mean, this is an election in particular where we cannot just sit back and say, let's let the professionals handle it. Everyone is under stress right now. And if we want to have a smooth election, all of us have to do our part, whether that's being proactive with our own ballot or giving our friends and neighbors real information about how to vote or actually volunteering and helping election officials in the run up to the election or sooner. Um, so I would say there's a lot of different ways to get involved. Uh, and then obviously after the election, um, stay active. Sorry, Roman, we could go on forever, but we can't on this night. But let me just ask you, what do you want to leave us with uh, as we wind down this wonderful evening with you? I just want to thank you for having me. It's been great uh, to, to do this event. And 
I guess just for me, the thing that's on my mind is the struggles of, of people like John Lewis, the struggles of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and to just remember uh, all the things that they fought for, to remember all the things that are at stake, and to remember that the course of history can change. That there was a time when John Lewis couldn't vote, then he became known as the conscience of the Congress. There was a time when Ruth Bader Ginsburg couldn't even get hired as a law clerk, and then she became a titan of justice on the Supreme Court. So sometimes it feels hopeless. I know there's a, people have a lot of things are hopeless about right now because of the pandemic, because of the Supreme Court, because of the president. But things can change. And I think we know that through history and that the vote has historically been one of the most powerful instruments of change. John Lewis called it the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democratic society. And those are the words that are gonna be in my head um, as I go to vote and as I think about this election and what comes after. Thank you so much. I think that's a call to action. And I wanna end where you began. And that is we've got to be moved by the spirit of history and the history of those who fought for us even to have the right to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank everybody for joining us. And I'll leave by saying, please vote. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Good night. Be well.